Today we are in uh, Titus, the book of Titus, and we started this series uh, last week, and uh, we're, we're in it again today. So perhaps we could stand together, and I'll read uh, some verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll go from there. So let's stand, and this is not on the screen, but I'm just going to read to you uh, from the, let's read from, I'll read from the NIV version. Thank you. Titus 1, starting in verse... Uh, five. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially of those among the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are running whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him, for they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing any good thing. Father, we pray this morning together. We just ask for your blessing now upon your word as we open our hearts to you, as we look to you in faith and thank you and ask you to quicken us by your spirit and lead us in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, let's be seated together. <clears throat> okay, the book of Titus, as we've mentioned before, is one of the pastoral epistles. These are the last three inspired letters written by Paul uh, at the end of his ministry or towards the end of his life, in fact. And these Three books or letters are so valuable uh, for us as church uh, leaders and church members as they directly address issues of leadership in church life. And we know that uh, Paul, Paul was writing to Titus, one of his sons in the faith, who was tasked with appointing elders in Crete. And he tells us in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might put in order that which was left unfinished and appoint elders 
in every town as I directed you. And in the passage we read, the majority there of chapter 1, you can see two types of people that are very clearly uh, described. One being the false teacher, that he was teaching the wrong thing to households, he was causing division. He had certain claims of faith, but but, uh, his works did not confirm his profession. And then contrasted to that was the elder that Paul beautifully describes to be a godly man, not a perfect man, but a godly man who is, um, who is noted for godly character um, and attributes that would be fitting of a, of a leader of the church. These two uh, types of people are described. And he tells Titus, this is the reason I left you in Crete, that you would appoint elders. For in Crete, there were growing groups of people, coming churches, and they were under the threat of false teachers. And Paul says there is something that is unfinished, and it is the setting up of elders. And with the elders should come sound doctrine and good teaching, and with that sound doctrine and good teaching should come godly living, uh, in the church, and that is the theme that's echoed through, uh, through the book. So to appoint elders, we see back on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 14, where Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And part of the completion of that work is that they had appointed elders. But this was unfinished in Crete and Titus was tasked to finish that work in appointing elders. And there are three different words that are used for the same office as elder. We closed with this in our message last week. And there are two places in the New Testament that you can see these three words used together. One is in Acts 20. We can see, says from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. This is presbuteros. This refers to a man of spiritual maturity. It should be that he has been around for a while. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.6, it says not to appoint a novice or a new convert should be a man who has some experience and hopefully has gathered some wisdom through the years. He may, he may have no hair or gray hair uh, or he, whatever, but the point being that he is spiritually mature. Keep, and that, he, that the elders of the church would keep watch, uh, sorry, keep watch for yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is the second word. And this is episkopos. This is to do with authority. They are to oversee. There is a governance, a rule that they are tasked or commissioned with over the church. Um, Sometimes this is translated bishop in some translations. We tend not to use that word because of how it's used in established religion. But nevertheless, it refers to this office. The only person in the church who calls me bishop is Richard. And that's allowed because I believe that's uh, that's said with affection. (laughs) And then be shepherds of the church of God. And this is the word poimin. It means 
it means uh, it's related to their responsibilities of leading and feeding the flock. The picture of a shepherd is a very consistent one through the scriptures. That, that Jesus, of course, is the chief shepherd, but he has appointed under-shepherds that would help lead and feed the flock. And this speaks of the pastor's responsibility over the, over the flock. He is not just an overseer or a ruler or a leader, but he is a shepherd. And that's a beautiful um, combination. Things can go wrong when authority with no care, no love, no heart is expressed. And I've seen that, and perhaps all of us have experienced that to some measure. And the result of that is people get hurt by the misuse or the misexpression of spiritual authority. Spiritual authority is given to bless, to serve, to minister, not to rule or govern over uh, or control people. We in fact, in, in Matthew 2.6, where it speaks about the coming of Jesus himself, it says, Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So Jesus himself is described as a ruler, but he is also a shepherd. Paul himself acknowledged this at the beginning of this very letter where he speaks about his servanthood and his apostleship. Um, the second passage where all three words are used is in First Peter, where Peter writes to the elders, that's presbyteros, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds, that's poimen, of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, and that is episcopeo, comes from that episkopos, it's that idea of, of um, ruling or overseeing. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So, we have elders, presbyteros refers to spiritual maturity, we have overseers, episkopos, to do with spiritual authority, and then we have shepherds, poimen, responsible to feed the flock, and that word is translated pastors in Ephesians 4.11, so we can use that term there. Uh, pastor, elders, overseers, pastor, all refers to the same office, the same person in the church. <clears throat> While we're in First Peter, let's just look at the next couple of verses uh, in chapter 5, uh, verse 3. It says, not lording it over those that are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So there you have it clearly said. The authority is not that you have a big stick to rule over people or to manipulate people or control people, but you are to serve and by example. And verse 4, and when Jesus, when the chief shepherd, Jesus of course, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So there you have uh, two shepherds mentioned in that passage. Jesus, the chief shepherd, and of course the under-shepherds, the poemen or the pastors. The model of leadership in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, is one that we don't look to the world to learn about leadership in the church because there is a major difference. Um, in the world, the issue might be how many servants do you have under you? But in the church, it would be how many people do you serve as a leader? It's different that your heart is to be a servant leader that was modeled and taught 
by the Lord himself in the upper room in John 13 where the master washed the feet of the disciples as an expression and an instruction to them of how they would continue as leaders in the church. It was not to, to govern or to lord it over people, but to serve them and be shepherds also leading them in the truth. In fact, in Mark 10, which is in that context, in verse 42, Jesus called them, his disciples together, and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, we could say, like the leadership in the world, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But listen to these words. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And of course, this heart of a servant should be what moderates every gift that is functioning in the church. All of us, as we function and serve in our gifts and our capacities and our responsibilities, the heart of a servant should be at the core. For that is an expression of God's very love, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It is a love that would serve others and serve our brothers and sisters. It's quite shocking when you think about Uh, In a few short centuries after this, after the early church, what leadership became in the church. It's a shocking consideration and and very um, instructive to us. It shows us that really all through church history there is a need to be looking to the scriptures and looking to the church and making sure that that one is, that, that the church is clearly defined by the Word of God, particularly the, the roles of leadership. What a bishop is in some churches and what a bishop is according to the Scriptures are two very different things. We could say that there is a need for church reform all the time, that we want to keep our finger on the pulse. Here in our local church, we could have what we could call an elder-led congregational structure where the church has appointed and entrusted elders to govern the church and uh, we have bylaws that are in place to keep the elders accountable Um, and then then, uh, as we look forward to add additional elders the current elders would prayerfully and carefully approach and appoint someone that could be uh, that that would fit that task. Um, The elders will be praying and, of course, communicate that to the church who is praying, and then there would be mentoring and preparation, and then ultimately that person will be brought before the church and it will be confirmed in a members' meeting, for example. And then following that, the, the person would be appointed by the elders with the laying on of hands. Deacons also are appointed by the elders. The elders, of course, um, hopefully because of their vantage point and uh, their involvement in the church, would know people uh, well enough to know those who uh, could be appropriate or fitted for the the role. Um, They would pray, they would communicate one with another, 
they would approach a person and hopefully, or not hopefully, but it should be someone who is already showing the heart to serve in the church. I think of David Shearman, for example, who is such a great example of that. Before he was, long before he was a deacon, how faithfully he was already serving in the church. We were just confirming something that was very apparent. Um, and then, of course, that person again would be brought before the church and together we would uh, hopefully affirm it. It would be unusual that we wouldn't affirm it, but the system is there. And the elder, of course, is distinct from the deacon. And listen carefully, because this is our church and this is important for us to understand. Of course, both serve the church. The elders are to serve the church and the deacons are to serve the church. But deacon, diakonos, actually means servant. His role, his duties, and his calling is to serve the church. And he is to serve in the practical matters relating to the physical stuff and the practical logistics of the church. Of course, he's to be a spiritual man, and the criteria for a deacon are given in the scriptures, uh, as in, in Titus 1 and, and uh, 1 Timothy 3, as they are for an elder. Um, but he does not govern the church. He does not have a position of spiritual leadership. It is not the deacon's place to correct someone, to reprimand someone, to... to uh, to exercise that type of authority. Essentially, the position is to serve, and there is no spiritual authority invested in the office of a deacon. Of course, he may be delegated under the elders to to, uh, lead a team, but he does that with love and grace um, in that delegated authority. Um, In our history, this is important clarification for us, because in our history we are coming from a place and we are going to a certain place and we function in a certain way of necessity and God has given that and had that and it's been beautiful for us. Um, We are so thankful for the godly men that God has given to serve in those capacities and this church could not and would not be what it is without those men who have faithfully served as deacons and in other ways and men and women, of course, in other areas uh, in the church. So uh, in Acts chapter 6, it gives us, and of course this is in the early church, when you study the book of Acts, you see the church growing and then out of necessity there was the need for organization. There were things that needed to be ordered. So in Acts chapter 6, Like Paul to Titus, there was something that needed to be set in order. So as the church grew, the organization was needed, and they added certain or appointed certain men. Let's read together in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Then the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the multitudes of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now let's make a point. It wasn't that the apostles were not willing to serve tables, but it's that they were not willing to leave the word of God. That was the issue. Of course, they would be available to serve, but it would be misplaced that the apostles would be be spending their time and efforts in serving tables when the, 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 the more essential need, according to their gifts and calling, would be to be teaching and preaching the word of God. That was essentially the need. Um... Of course, apostles now have passed off the scene. We do not have apostles today. But they functioned, there was a transitional period in the early church. For example, 
one of many verses in Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, you can see the apostles and the elders listed together in 15.6. It says the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So as the apostles passed off the scene, the elders clearly were the recognized leadership in the church. Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint over this business. Now, of course, they are not called deacons here, but we can see the seed form of what would become uh, deacons in the New Testament church. You can see that they were to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Verse 4. But we, the apostles speaking, will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. I always loved how it says prayer first and then the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Of course it did. Of course it should as we, the people of God, see this order and people being fitted according to their gifts and calling in the church to serve the church. This saying Please, the whole multitude, and they chose, and you can see them listed there, Stephen, Philip, etc., whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. What's beautiful about this is we look at the results in verse 7. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Why? Because the deacons were able to serve in those tasks freeing the apostles to be teach it, to be praying, teaching, and preaching, and therefore, subsequently, the church grew. So you can see how invaluable the ministry and the calling of a deacon would be to serve in the church, to allow the teaching and the preaching of the word to have free course. And the result is wonderful. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. And of course, this would be in the heart not only of a deacon, but anyone who serves in any measure in the church. We're not over-occupied with the fact that I'm washing a dish in the sink, but I'm occupied with the fact that the, the disciples are multiplying. Because every, every aspect of our ministry is so crucial in the work of God. Nothing is, is, uh, is invaluable, is, uh, is not valuable. So, This wouldn't have happened without these men serving. And this is setting things in order. This is what Paul wrote to Titus. I left you in Crete that you might set things in order. So the elders are for the governance, the spiritual health, the leadership of the church, and then the deacons are serving practically, logistically in the church, and they're doing so in love. Now, back in... In Titus chapter 1, Paul gives some criteria for the elder. He lists some characteristics, things that they shouldn't be and things that they should be. And these are essential qualities of an elder. Now, of course, these are, these are characteristics that, generally speaking, should be seen in the lives of any growing believer. And as we read them, we can also uh, consider that to be a, a, a work that God is doing in all of our lives. But here it's speaking about um, uh, in the context of an elder and what he should be. Also in 1 Timothy 3, there is a parallel passage. Um, they are not identical, which tells us this is not an exhaustive list. 
There are five things omitted in Titus that are in Timothy, and there are five things added in Titus that are not in Timothy. So it's not an exhaustive list, but, um, but we understand what it's saying. After we read the words, it's painted a certain picture of what a man um, should reflect. And you'll notice an emphasis, as we go through this passage, on character. There's an emphasis on the character of the man more than an emphasis on what he does. For, of course, that's more important. Who you are is more important than what you do. Particularly highlighted here. Who is the man? What convictions does he have? Is he godly? Etc. Of course, because he would fail at his duties and his calling as the leader of the church if he didn't have the character that's that's um, highlighted here. Let's remember also we're not looking for a perfect man, for there are none. And if you take any of these too rigidly, um, you, could, you could potentially exclude most um, uh, suited candidates. Um, some points are fairly subjective in measurement, and it's left that way purposely. You can't make the bar too high Otherwise, we'll never have any elders because sinners is all we've got to deal with. So we have that in mind. So first of all, an elder must be blameless. And again, let's not confuse this word with perfect or faultless. Blameless, it means that there is nothing chargeable to him. There is nothing hidden. There are no charges that could be pinned to him that have any credence. He has a good reputation in the church and outside of the church that he is a man who is not um, accused of misconduct or dishonest gain. I was told recently of someone who left the church because they discovered that one of the elders in their own private life was doing something in their job that was dishonest. And that person stood back and said, wait a minute, that's, that's not being blameless. There's something that, that's not right about that. The life should match the faith and the testimony of that person. Secondly, it says, faithful to his wife. Uh, notice here it says his, and it says wife. It's clearly speaking of a man. That an elder is defined clearly in the scriptures as a man. So it is with deacons also, that they are to be faithful to their wife. The Bible calls on men as elders and leaders and deacons of the church. Now that might stand against the tide of our day. Um, Nevertheless, we are believers and we look to the Bible and we understand it's not an issue of superiority of one, superiority of one over the other. It's not an issue of equality. It's an issue of God's order, that God has prescribed a certain leadership in the church and it clearly teaches that elders and deacons are to be men. Does that mean that women cannot lead in the church? Of course it doesn't. We have many women leaders in our church, leading the music ministry, leading the ushers, leading the Sunday school and on. Of course, women lead in the church, but these particular offices are prescribed to men. As as grace believers, we understand that submission is not an ugly word, but it's a beautiful word, because it's voluntary submission because of love. It's not an an authority that is extended um, in in some brute force, but it's it's, uh, in love. 
When we recognize that type of authority, it's very easy in our hearts to submit because we understand that there's a a blessing there. So God has an order in church government. Faithful to his wife, or the actual um, translation is it? Um, In other translations, it says he is to be the husband of one wife in the King James translation, etc. Now, if it says he's to be the husband of one wife and you apply that too rigidly, that would mean that you could never have an elder who is single. You could never have an elder whose wife has passed away and now he is a widow because he is not the husband of one wife. Or you couldn't have someone who has uh, divorced and remarried, uh, etc. But is that what it's saying? Well, in First Corinthians 7, 8, Paul himself was single and he was an apostle. So clearly we have to say it can't be that that's what it's teaching. It's not, it's not saying that he has to have a wife. It doesn't say he's to be the husband of a wife. It says he's to be the husband of one wife. But really the better translation and the Greek rendering leans itself to say that he is a one-woman man is a better way to understand this. This means that he is devoted to his wife, both physically and mentally. Because clearly, just to be the husband of one wife doesn't necessarily mean anything. He could have a horrific marriage. It's not just about being married, but clearly it's something deeper than that. That he is to be devoted to his wife. He has eyes and heart for no one else. He's not living with uncontrolled lusts. He's not succumbing to pornography. He would never even dream to look at that. If he did, then this would actually kind of disqualify him. There is something amiss in his life. Whether I'm married or single, that is a sin and I should run from it as fast as I can. He is faithful to his wife. He is a one-woman man. There is an exclusive, wholesome relationship with his wife. Then it goes on to say, whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. This is another another one of those phrases that causes a little bit of, or what does that mean? Does it mean you can only be an elder if your children are Christians? Or what does it mean that his children believe? If it means that their children, the, the elders' children, are to be saved, at what age are we talking about? If the elder has a baby or a toddler, when do they get saved and how can you determine that? Or if it's to mean that their children are to be saved, who is to be the judge of that? You? Whether that person's child is saved or not? Again, it, we're careful how we apply this not too rigidly. Because the responsibility of the conversion, the salvation of someone's soul, does not lie with the father. Although, of course, he nurtures and prays for that child and hopes that they will believe. But salvation is a work of God. But certainly we consider the man's relationship with his children. Do we see love and respect and honor in the home? That the children are not worldly or wayward. The child may make their own decisions later when they grow up, but while they're in the home, under his 
um, under his headship as the as the as the father. Um, they are not, it says, wild and disobedient. And this speaks of a moral indulgence in sin. It doesn't just mean that they, they are playing up a little bit or running down the aisle in church. Oh, look at that wild and disobedient child. No. He's talking about something much more severe than that. Then he continues, for five things that the elders are not to be. In verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. We've already mentioned that word. Not overbearing. This means not self-willed. He must be intreatable. It's not his way or the highway. But he is reasonable. Not enforcing his will over everyone else's. I'm the pastor, so that's the end of the conversation. No. He, goes, he doesn't just go ahead and do things his way anyway. He desires to be accountable. He desires to be reasonable. And he understands that God can lead and bless that way. Not a person that doesn't care about the feelings or the opinions or the rights of others. Um, churches have certainly been hurt by elders who are overbearing. And certainly he won't function well on a board of elders unless they're all yes men anyway and ready to agree with what he says. Um, He's not going to survive well on a board of elders. He is not to be overbearing. Also not to be quick-tempered. This doesn't mean that he may not lose his temper once in a blue moon. We all may have our off days. But it means that that he can control his anger. He can handle situations with calmness. That anger would, can be used in a, in a leader to intimidate or control people. But he is a man who expresses self-control, patience, kindness. If he lost his temper all the time at every situation, that would be a problem. That's what it's saying. And not given to drunkenness. Have I got that? Yeah, not given to drunkenness. This is that he doesn't have a need or a crutch or a tendency or a need for alcohol in his life to meet a certain need. I believe an elder personally shouldn't drink at all. Uh, When I became a Christian, uh, I decided quite quickly that I was not going to drink alcohol or touch alcohol. And it's been 30 years that alcohol has not touched my lips. I didn't make that decision because I was an elder or I was going to be an elder. I made that decision in my own convictions, particularly because of what I had come out of as an unbeliever. And I'm so thankful today that I can look a teenager in the eyes and say, alcohol does not touch these lips. I don't need it. It's not a vice. I get my my satisfaction and my encouragement from the Lord. I see what a divisive, destructive weapon and tool in the hands of the devil alcohol is in this world. And I've made a kingdom statement and I say I don't touch it to the glory of God. Now I don't say that to enforce my convictions on you. I just say that as your pastor so you know what my conviction is. That's all. For my own, we all are free. We're all free to, to, to make our own decisions before the Lord. But certainly the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, I think it is, to be not drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that applies to all. And it goes on to say, not violent, that you would never lay a hand on someone in anger, 
that his temper would never get the better of him, would never get physical. It also may include a man who is verbally violent or combative. And then it says not pursuing dishonest gain. Or in Timothy's passage in 3.3, it says that he is free from the love of money. That he is not in it for the money. He will not use a situation to make money dishonorably. In a secular job, that may be more commonplace, that people will cut corners and, and, and use it to their advantage, but uh, not so in the house of God. And then there are six positives, things that he should be. He should not be this, 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 but rather he should be this in verse 8. Rather he should be hospitable. This is basically saying that he loves people. If you have a pastor and on the Jesus name, amen, he's out the door and never sees anyone, that's a problem. If an elder doesn't like people, he's in the wrong place. For this is all about people. He has a genuine interest in others. He accepts and welcomes all. He's not exclusive, but he has a heart for all. He would love the stranger beyond those that he knows. He looks to shepherd all people who, who would draw near. It means that his life is open. Does he have privacy and a family? Of course. But also an open heart and an open house. He would visit people and have people over. He is hospitable. And one who loves what is good. Some of this needs little commentary. It speaks for itself. But what does he fill his mind with? What does he fill his life with? In his spare time, what is he occupied with? Does he fill his life with all the rubbish that's online or on the TV? Or does he rejoice in the things of God, the work of God, the people of God? Even on his day off. You can tell the character of a man by what he loves. That he should be upright. And again, none of these words are talking about that he is perfect. But he is upright. And probably in the context here, it means that he deals fairly with others. That he weighs the fact and makes impartial decisions accordingly. That he is upright or just or fair, it could be said. That he is holy. And this means that he has learned to put his hand like this. And Now, what does it mean to be holy? Such a sadly misrepresented word by so many. It simply means to be separate, to be set apart in this world from sin. In other words, he's not indulging in sin with sinners. He may minister to sinners in their sin, but he's not indulging in it. He has certain convictions and walks accordingly. And then lastly, that he is to be disciplined. The word literally means to be strong in a thing. It means that he is a person of principle and conviction. He is not easily moved from it. He has self-control in terms of his appetite, and he is focused in his Christian life. And then in the next verse, verse 9, it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. What a beautiful phrase that is. 
He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word. Trustworthy message. That this word is worthy of my trust. Amen? This word is worthy of our faith and our focus. It is trustworthy. And he is to hold firmly to it. And I love that. It'll hold fast, the King James says, like white knuckles, holding as fast as he can, like someone holding on to the cliff edge. He's holding on. He understands his life depends upon it. And so it should be, we could say, for every Christian, but how much more for someone who is an elder or a, or a shepherd leading the flock, that he is holding fast personally and in his, in his ministry to the faithful word. And notice these words, as he has been taught. Paul writing to Timothy and to Titus, these men, listen, how you were taught according to the gospel and the correct doctrine is how you should Uh, is what you're holding on to, particularly in the light of so much false teaching as both Timothy and Titus had to face. So not moving away from the message, but holding tight to it. And any of us who have been in church ministry for any amount of time know that there are so often uh, trends and winds of doctrines and things that become fashionable to try and experience and directions that people go. And, And it's okay to try new things, but you need to be so guarded that in trying something new, you don't compromise that which is true. I had a pastor say to me a few years ago in Hungary, whatever it takes to grow the church... And I said, oh no, not whatever it takes. Because included in that could be compromising the most important thing. And that is the message. So Paul says, tightly, tightly holding to the trustworthy message as you have been taught. Why? Look at the next part of the verse. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So he is settled, founded, rooted in the word. Crucial for a church leader. Strange doctrines come in. Hopefully all of us, with the word in our hearts, can discern it and say, wait a minute, that's not grace or that's not true, that's not the gospel. We should all be able to discern it, but how much more an elder needs to discern that? When someone comes into the church and starts spouting something, The elder should very quickly pick that up and lovingly address it and correct it as need be because people can be hurt or affected by that. So Timothy's passage puts it this way in 3.2, he should be apt to teach. This doesn't mean that every elder is a great orator or a great preacher. He may not have a preaching gift. But it means that he can use the Bible to address certain questions and certain errors. He may not know every answer. He may not know every chapter and verse. But he has a biblical mind. He can discern error and he can address it accordingly. And the need for that goes on verse 10 and on. We'll we'll stop here today because of time. But it's in the context of the false teachers. He must be able to discern and address it accordingly. So... We'll finish there today and we'll continue next week in the book of Titus. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you this morning for this time looking through these verses, considering um, the, 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 the beauty of the church as things are put in order 
according to your word. And we just thank you for the immeasurable blessings that we have had and have in our church with spiritual men and women who, who have served and served so faithfully with hearts of love and humility to, to the church for your glory. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing. We pray that you'd lead us forward as a church. We pray that you would keep us from, from, uh, from error, that you would uh, guide us, that you would lead us, or oh, that you would be uh, kind and gentle and clear and uh, um, with, with us as a church, from, with, from, from each one, for every elder, every deacon, every leader, every person in our local church. Oh, we thank you for those that you have, you are, you have brought in to be with us these past months and, and this past year and so. Oh, thank you, Lord. We take a moment even now to pray for Peace Haven, to pray for our town, our mission field for this time and opportunity you've given us as a local church. Oh, we pray as things, uh, as you lead us, as you take us forward, as things are set in order in the church and in our hearts, oh, that we would see, just as Acts 6 speaks about, the disciples multiplying greatly. We ask you to do that. We pray that you would continue to draw people and bless us. We pray for... Uh, love peace haven we pray for the knocking on the doors even this wednesday after uh, uh, grace cafe as we go out to give out flyers we pray you bless that time we just give it to you and just use these times together to instruct our hearts we pray i pray for anyone here perhaps who's not a christian you're not sure of your salvation perhaps you're listening online or you're here this morning And, oh, here is the wonderful gospel laid before you this morning, that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that he is the Savior. He died for your sins to make a way for you to be reconciled unto God. Just put your faith in him this morning. Say, Jesus, I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.